So this morning we're launching into a brand new sermon series, Book of Exodus, and we are going to be diving in, going chapter by chapter, verse by verse through this entire book. And it's going to take a few years for us to get all the way through it. And, I, and I'm being serious on that one. We're going to be at this one for a long time. I was talking to my, my son Max about that, about how to get through the book. And, you know, I said it's going to take a few years. He's like, are you telling me we're going to be in the book of Exodus for the next few years? And the answer is yes and no. Now, if you were here when we did the book of Genesis, we went chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and it took a few years. But what we did is we took it in chunks. And that's why we're going to do the book of Exodus. So right now, between now, it's taking us all the way, get this, to the day before Halloween. That's how long it's going to take us to get through chapters 1 through 13. We are going to be digging in because there is so much truth to this book. It is so rich. And I want to squeeze every last truth and application out of this. Because the book of Exodus is one of the most pivotal books in the Bible. It, it foreshadows the cross, the redemption of humanity. It, is, it informs the entire Old Testament and the New Testament. And we need to make sure we understand this book. So we're going we're gonna to dig into that book. And then we're going to move on to a few other things. And then the next year we're going to come back to another portion Move on to other things the next year to another portion until we get through the book. And I'm going to go ahead and confess something to you right now, uh, just so you know this. Uh, I, I have a, an ulterior motive in this. Rick Weintraub is going to be so happy with me on this. My goal, Rick, is to make it through the Pentateuch while I'm pastor here. It may take us 20-something years, but that's my goal. Some of you are going, what's a Pentateuch? Right now, you have no clue what that is. He knows what it is. It's the Penta 5, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And my goal is to go all the way through this to give you the foundation of all the faith that you have as we go through. So we finished the book of Genesis. That took us about four years to get through. Now we're on to Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. It's time to dig in and to begin this beautiful journey. So open your Bibles, if you will. Book of Genesis, I'm excuse me, book of Exodus chapter 1. Now if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, and, and, and praise God, if you are new to the faith and you're new to the Bible, I'm so glad you're a part of this. Uh, and I, here's how you, you find it. It's very easy. You go to the first book of the Bible. The book of the Bible is Genesis. And the next book is Exodus. So second book of the entire Bible, book of Exodus. Find the first chapter, first verse. So we're going to start. Go ahead and put some kind of marker in there. Do something because we're going to keep coming back to this and just slowly work our way through. But verses 1 through 7 give us all the background we need. So let's jump into it. Exodus 1 beginning in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Can I pause there? So verses 1 through 7 are the intro portion of the passage of Scripture that, that teach us the framework of what we're going to be dealing with in the book of Exodus. Now, there's something you don't notice because the English versions don't translate it. But if you were to look at the Hebrew, there's a word right before these are. It's the word and. It's and. These are the names of the sons of Israel. So the first word in this book is and. I don't know if you've ever read a book in your life that the first word of the book was and. It's, it's not common. It's not normal. But there's a very specific reason why the first word in this book is and is because it's a continuation of what was going on before. All Genesis happened, and now we're moving on to this. It's like previously on Lost, you know, you're watching all that had to take place, you know, that summary, and now you can move on. So it's like previously in Genesis, here's what happened, and now we're moving on. That's why it starts with the word and, because it wants us to have the history, which means you cannot understand Exodus until you first go back and understand Genesis. 
And again, I, I know there are all kinds of people, maybe some of you new to our church, you were not a part of the Genesis series. And so I want to give you a 30,000 foot level flyby history of Genesis. I'm not even going to go all the way back to the beginning. I'm going to start in chapter 12 where there was a man named Abraham. Actually, at the time, his name was Abram. He hadn't had his name changed yet. He was Abram, and he walked in faith and left his land to go to the land of Canaan because God said, go to this land I'm going to show you, and I will bless you. I'll make you into a great nation. There was just one eensy-weensy little problem. He was 75 and didn't have a single son. He was married to Sarai at the time, and they didn't have any children, and it seemed impossible. And yet God came again and again and again and made these promises to him that he was going to be fruitful and multiply, and he was going to have this great descendancy. I'm not going to read all of them, but I want you to flip back. Keep your place in Exodus 1, but go back to the book of Genesis and go to chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. I want you to listen to one of these promises, the magnitude of these promises that God makes to Abraham. It says in Genesis 17, 4, Behold, God is speaking to Abraham. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So here's this promise made to Abram. Now the name change means it's cemented in the heavens. You are going to be the father of a great nation, multitudes and multitudes of nations. He tells them in other places, try to count the little grains of sand on the seashore, and if you can, you'll be able to count all your descendants. Beyond number. Again, the problem was he didn't have a son. And then later he has a son, but it's through his whole thing with Hagar. It's a long story, but didn't work out really well. Till finally, when he's 100 years old, God fulfills the promise to him, and he has a son, a son of the covenant named Isaac. And God doesn't leave this promise with Abraham. God comes back to Isaac now, the next generation, and reiterates the exact same promise. So if you were to go over to Genesis 26 and read just one verse, verse 4, listen to what it says. God is talking to Isaac now. And he says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He says, it's going to be like the stars of the heavens. I don't know if you've ever had the good pleasure to go out somewhere where there's not light pollution in the middle of a night sky and look up and just see the host of the heavens. When I was a kid, I used to try to count them. You don't, you don't make it that far before you get so confused. Which star was I at? I mean, you, just, you can't count them. And he's saying, and remember, back then they didn't have any light pollution. He's saying, look up, Isaac, at the heavens. Try to see if you can count the stars, because if you can, you'll be able to count all your descendants. I'm going to make you an incredible nation. He's reiterating the promise to them. And then, sure enough, later on in life, Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. And if you know any of the story, Esau kind of forfeits his promise. Jacob becomes the son of the promise of the covenant. And God comes back to Jacob and makes the same promise to Jacob. And I want you to hear just how similar the wording is. If you were to flip over to Genesis 35, verses 10 and 11. God now talking to the third generation, to Jacob. It says, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Here you see the same promise reiterated. You're going to be this multitude of nations because I, Almighty God, am going to do it. He changes his name again to cement the promise. Now the third generation after the same promise again and again and again, like this driving force to say, I'm going to do this. And if you know the story, Jacob was very fruitful and he multiplied. He had 12 sons and one daughter. It's a whole other thing about a number of wives. I'm not going to get into that because it gets really weird. But just trust me, 12 sons, one daughter, 
And there was all kinds of weird dynamics in their family. The 11th born, Joseph, has these dreams that he thinks he's better than his brothers and they're going to bow down to him. The, the 10 older brothers get jealous. And so they sell him into slavery and he goes off into Egypt as a slave. And you keep reading the story, God's circuitous way of bringing all things together for good. Jo Joseph ends up rising up to the second place in all the land of Egypt. He forgives his brothers. When there's a famine, he brings his whole family into Egypt. And that's when we arrive in what we read in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And now right now you're going, okay, thank you for that one million mile an hour history lesson. I caught maybe 10% of that, but thank you. I, I tried to stay awake, Jason. I'm a little sleepy right now. Go ahead and tell me why in the world would you take the time to deliver this message to me? Why, why all this history? And there's an incredibly important reason why you need to understand everything I just shared with you. I was very meticulous in giving you these data points. Here's the reason why. What I need you to see about Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, is every bit of it is simply a picture that our God makes good on every promise he makes. Our God is a promise keeper. You cannot understand the book of Exodus until you know that God's very character is that he is a promise keeper. Every bit of what you see is God keeping his promises. The fact that they're in Egypt, the fact that they're multiplying. Verse 7, they were multiplying, they're being fruitful, they're filling the land. This is God keeping good on his promise that he made to Abraham, that he made to Isaac, that he made to Jacob, and nothing was going to thwart his promises. The whole book of Exodus, in fact, the whole Bible is a story that God, when he makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. He will never fail you. He's batting a thousand on keeping promises. If there is anything that should give you hope this morning, it's the fact that our God is a promise keeper. Because I want you to know, this book right here, I hope you take the time to read it, Read it from beginning to end because it has some phenomenal promises that have been made to you and I, people who are people of faith. Promises that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will bless you. I will do good to you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I'll give you joy that is unending. I'll give you a peace that surpasses understanding. And at the end of the day, I will save you and give you eternal life. And guess what? Every promise he makes, he keeps. He will not fail in any one of these promises. There is nothing that should give you greater hope and the fact that the promises that the Father has made to us, he's going to keep. But I also know this. I know because there are hundreds and hundreds of people in this room that there are some of you right now. And if you were being honest, you're, you're too shy to do it. You're not going to lift your hand. But if you were being honest, you would say, Jason, it doesn't feel like God is keeping his promises to me right now. There's some of you watching online right now saying that you, you can't even come to church. Maybe you have a health issue right now. And you're going, it doesn't feel like God is keeping his promises to me right now. There's, I don't know the things you're going through. Some of you are going through some financial issues. It doesn't feel like God's providing for me. Going through some health issues. doesn't feel like God's protecting me. Going through some marriage issues. doesn't feel like God is doing good to me. You're looking at your life right now and you're going, I don't feel the promises of God. I know what you're saying. I think I believe you, Jason, but I don't see the promises of God being fulfilled. And I want you to know, this is a truth and a reality of this broken world we live in. That there are going to be moments when it doesn't feel like God is not fulfilling his promises. The book of Exodus, by the way, doesn't hide these moments. In fact, what you're about to see is that it opens it up very clearly and says, God, yes, is a promise keeper, but also hell itself fights against the promises of God. And there will be moments when it feels like hell is winning and God is not fulfilling his promises. If you, if you don't know this, the storyline of the Bible, these big picture narratives of the Bible are important. One of the biggest one is that Satan wants to keep the people of God from receiving the promises of God because he knows we will bless God if we receive his promises. And Satan does not want us to praise God because he wants to praise for himself. 
So he has made it his ambition to stop the promises of God from coming to the people of God so that we will not praise God. And he works and fights tooth and nail to keep us from doing that. He's been doing that from the beginning, trying to stop us from receiving the promises of God. In fact, you can see it even in the terminology that is supposed to go back to, to Genesis chapter 1 and show you how Satan himself has been fighting against the promises of God. In fact, did you, did you notice the terminology in verse 7? It says that they were, they were fruitful and they multiplied greatly and they filled the land. Do you remember when that was first spoken? It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God has created male and female and he says to them, here's my command to you, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Those are very unique Hebrew words, fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And you go over to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, and the very wording it uses is that they were fruitful, that they were exceedingly fruitful, and that they multiplied, and that they filled the land. The exact same three Hebrew words, showing that they were doing exactly how God intended to bless. This was God's blessing upon them. Here they are in a foreign land, and God is blessing them because they are obeying that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But do you know what happened in Genesis chapter 1? after he creates Adam and Eve, before they even have a chance to begin to multiply, you move into chapter two, you're introduced to their names, Adam and Eve, and then you move on to chapter three, and before they can even begin to be fruitful and multiply in the beginning, there's another person who enters in. Actually, he slithers in. It's a little snake, and it's the devil, the ancient serpent, Satan himself, and his goal, like I said before, is to keep the people of God from receiving the promises of God so that we don't praise God. And sure enough, in the Garden of Eden, he comes up to Adam and Eve and says, no, no, God's against you. He's trying to hold you back. So you need this fruit so you can be like, he makes them lust after the forbidden fruit. They take the forbidden fruit so that they're kicked out of the garden. So they cannot receive the promises of fellowship with God. He's, he's been trying to stop it because they were getting the be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So he comes in to try to thwart it and he does a really good job. And then you get over to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. It says, they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, they're filling the earth. And Satan sees the people receiving the blessing of God, and here he comes slithering in again. Except this time he doesn't come as a snake. This time he comes as Pharaoh. I want you to read what happens now if they're receiving the blessing of God. Listen to how the enemy fights against it. Going back to the book of Exodus, chapter 1. Now we're moving on to verse 8. Here's what it says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Now, now stop there just for a moment. So here they're multiplying, they're receiving the blessing of God, and now you have this dude Pharaoh who steps in and says, i got to stop it. Now there's a few history details you need to know to really grasp what's taking place. First thing is that we don't know who this Pharaoh is. It says there arose a new king and Pharaoh came against them. But it does not give us the name of this Pharaoh. And there are many people who actually struggle immensely with the fact that we don't have the name of the Pharaoh. We can't locate him in the, the, the history books in, in ancient Egypt because they were very meticulous about keeping the names of the Pharaohs in order. So we don't know exactly when it took place. And there are people, especially unbelievers, who will say, Look, you can go back and read all of Egyptian history and you'll never read any story about any exodus taking place. You'll never read any story about these Hebrew slaves that rose up against the Pharaoh about any kind of ten plagues. You'll never read a story about these millions of Hebrew slaves being set free and 
and then the water falling over the Egyptian army, and you, you won't read any of that. Therefore, it must never have actually taken place. This is just made-up story to teach some kind of truth, but you can't trust it because it would have shown up an event that big in Egyptian chronicles somewhere. And so they discredit it. We don't know the name of the Pharaoh, and it doesn't show up anywhere, so it must not be true. But, I, but it, just in case, I don't think the majority of you believe that, but just in case that churns in your mind, I want to I explain a couple things early on to increase your faith. First of all, let me go ahead and tell you how history works. The people who write the history books are the victors of history. And they always tell a good story on themselves. You look, especially over ancient history, you look at it. Look at how they tell the history story. They always put themselves in a shining light. The only people who are bad are the ones they defeat. So do you really think there's going to be a pharaoh who's going to go, I'm such a scumbag that, that some foreign god totally kicked my tail and brought these plagues and I let, a whole bunch, I let a million plus slaves go free and then I changed my mind. I went after him and my entire army was drowned and I came back with my, tw my tail between my legs. He is not going to write an obelisk to put that story up there so the whole world can remember that kind of failure. No Egyptian pharaoh is going to record that story. So it, it does not make any sense at all to, to discredit the story just because that isn't somewhere in the chronicles of the Egyptians. There were many things that other history books write about that took place in Egypt that it, Egypt does not record. But let's go back to the issue now that it doesn't tell us the name of the Pharaoh. Now we have a general idea of about when this would have taken place depending on the date of the Exodus that you can use as you read the Bible. Either took place sometime in the 1400s BC or sometime in the 1200s BC depending on how you date certain passages of scripture. And there were different pharaohs that would have been in those timetables, but it doesn't tell us specifically which pharaoh. And that used to trouble me until I came to this realization. There's a very specific reason why the Bible doesn't tell us the name of the pharaoh. It's because he doesn't want to give a place of prominence to that particular pharaoh. You, you do know this. I, I, I think many of you know this. Even if you've never studied the Bible, you realize that the pharaoh's main job was to make a name for himself. He wanted to create a legacy. This is why you have pyramids and why you have sphinxes and things like that. They would build these huge monuments and they would plaster their names all over it. They would name their son, their grandson, their great-grandson. It would just be the same name, one, two, three, four, five, because they want their name to be carried on forever and ever. They would build these massive cities and they would pop their names on top of it because their number one job was to make a name for themselves and a, a legacy that will last for generation after generation. They thought they were gods and they want to be remembered at God, as gods. And the sheer fact that the Bible doesn't tell us the name of the Pharaoh is God saying, I'm not going to give a place of prominence to some mere human being who thinks he's a God. It actually refuses to give his name so that he doesn't have that place of prominence. So there's a very specific reason why he doesn't. He only calls him Pharaoh, the generic name. Because he says, I'm not going to give you that pleasure to have your name recorded in my book. So there's very easy reasons to understand why we don't have the lineup in Egyptian history, why we don't have the name. That does not discredit this book at all. I'm here to tell you this book is telling truth. These events really happened. And we need to understand them because they explain our faith. So I'm going to go back to the story a bit now that you know that. So it says that there was this new king that arose who did not know Joseph. Now one of the main reasons why he didn't know Joseph is because this had taken place some 400 years before this moment. 400 years had passed and he didn't, he didn't, it's not that he didn't even know Joseph because the pharaohs actually had to study their Egyptian history. It meant that he didn't really care about Joseph and what had happened for him. There's a Hebrew word to know, it's yada. And that word doesn't just mean to know like cognitively. It also means he refused to recognize or to acknowledge him. That's what that word yada can mean as well. 
And so it's saying basically Pharaoh refused to acknowledge or recognize what had been done for him and how God had protected his people and spared them from a famine. And ultimately in this moment now, this Pharaoh, this unnamed king is setting himself up against God himself. Now it's really interesting when you read the book of Exodus, if you're not careful, you're going to think it's a battle between Pharaoh and the nation of Israel. That's not really the battle taking place. Next week, I'm going to introduce you to Moses. And as you keep on reading the book of Exodus, you're going to think it's a story of a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. But it's not really a battle between Pharaoh and Moses. What you're going to discover ultimately is that it's a battle between Pharaoh and Almighty God himself. And it's a battle that Pharaoh is never going to win. The whole book of Exodus is a story of that no one comes against the promises of God and wins. Because God always keeps his promises. But if I were really being honest with you, like I've already shared a bit of it, this isn't ultimately a story about Pharaoh against God. It's ultimately a story of the devil against God. Satan coming against God. Because Satan somehow thinks that he can take down Almighty God. But here's the craziest thing. Anytime you look at the scriptures, what you discover is you read them over and over and over, story after story after story, is that every time Satan comes against God, he fails. And not just fails, it blows up in his face. Catastrophic failure over and over and over again. Which is really interesting because I think it attacks some of some bad theology that we have. Where we, we think about good and evil, like they're trying to duke it out, like God versus Satan. And we're, we're just kind of waiting to see who's going to win this battle. These are not equals coming against each other. It's not like God versus Satan and one's winning at one time and it goes back and forth. No, 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 no. Satan is just a pawn in the hands of Almighty God. And every time, every time he thinks he's taking down God's plan, he just furthers God's plan. In fact, here's one of the best parts about this story. is when you read what happens, Pharaoh comes against him and he's trying to do all this stuff. Look at what takes place the very next verse. So he's oppressing them. He's trying to keep them down. Listen to what happens in verse 12. It says, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. That's, that's what you talk about, right in your face. Here's Pharaoh thinking he's going to keep the, the people of God down. He's going to oppress Israel. And the more he oppresses them because he's afraid of them, the more they multiply like rabbits. I mean, they're just like all over the place. And he's even more afraid afterward. Why? Because it blew up in his face. And remember, this is just a pawn at the hand of Satan. At the end of the day, this is just Satan trying to take the people of God and rob them of the blessings of God and the promises of God so they don't praise God and it keeps blowing up in his face again and again and again. Satan is no match for the Father. In fact, here's what's so interesting. I don't know how I missed this for all these years of reading the Bible, but I didn't discover this until just a few years ago. But the Bible actually says to Abraham, back when he was still Abram, that all this was going to take place. I want to read a quick little verse for you. It's back in the book of Genesis. It's in uh, verse 15, or chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Now, now remember, this is over 600 years before all that's taking place in Exodus chapter 1. And Genesis 15, verse 13 says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." So they're going to go into a land that's not theirs. They're going to sojourn there for 400 years. They're going to be oppressed there. And then I'm going to lead them out. And you come to Exodus chapter 1. And they've been in the land for 400 years. And now's the moment when they're oppressed. And God says, I'm going to bring you out. Now Satan thinks 
that he's gonna overcome God and rob the people of God from the promises. He's gonna raise up Pharaoh and he's gonna take down the promises of God. And all he's doing is fulfilling what God had foretold over 600 years before. He just keeps feeding right into the plans of God because ultimately Satan cannot thwart the promises of God. The greatest story of this, in fact, that everything that's taking place right here is just pointing to something in the future that was gonna take place on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because here was going to be the moment that Satan really thought he could end what God was doing. He discovers, somehow, someway he discovers that God himself has taken on flesh and come in the form of Jesus Christ. And he realizes at some point, oh no, God himself is here to rescue his people. I've got to stop this. He brings all of hell itself, all the, the powers of darkness against this man, Jesus. He brings the Pharisees against him, the Sadducees against him, the Romans against him, Pilate against him. Until finally when Jesus is 33 years old, Satan finally gets into that point where he's crucified on the cross, put in the grave. And the devil says, finally. And three days later, he says, oh, dang it. Because he sees a man named Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he realizes he's just secured the redemption of every single human being who would believe in him. It's the most epic backfire in the history of humanity. He thought he could win. And he secures the plan of salvation that God had set in place. He tries again and again and again, and he cannot make it happen. And here's the reason why. When God makes a promise, no one can stop it. He is faithful to keep every single one of his promises he makes. That's why you and I can take that to the bank. But that doesn't mean right now it feels like God is fulfilling his promises. It doesn't mean that every single moment it's going to be easy and simple. and Like, yeah, of course. You know, God wins. I know the story of the cross. I know the resurrection. God wins. Everything's fine. I'm going to be great. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because when all hell is fighting against the promises of God, that can be deeply painful. And there's some of you here right now, and you're learning something about Satan. He is a defeated foe, but if he's got anything going for him, he's a tenacious foe. And he does not accept defeat. He knows his end is coming, and so he's, he's keep on fighting like at some way, somehow he can take down God, even though he knows he can't. And that means he is not going to stop the fight against you or against me. You see it in the book of Exodus. It's the same thing that happens with Pharaoh. Here he is, he's oppressing the people of God, and they keep multiplying, and you would think he would back down, but he's way too dumb for that. He's, he's way too controlled by Satan for that. So what does he do? He keeps pressing ahead, keeps making it hard for them to see the promises of God. Let's keep on reading, verses 13 through 16. Exodus chapter 1, verse 13. It says, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Okay, now stop there. So here's Pharaoh, controlled by Satan, and he just can't get it through his thick skull that he's not going to win. So he keeps pressing on. And now he comes up with an even more ingenious idea. He's scared about their population growth. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to have every single male child killed, only let the women grow up. Because if he can do that, there will still be servants, still be slaves there. But they won't be able to fight against the Egyptian army. They'll be able to be controlled. So he comes up against these Egyptian midwives. And he says, I want you to go kill all the the Hebrew boys who were born. Now, in this moment, I guarantee you, these little Hebrew midwives are going, Lord, doesn't feel like you're fulfilling your promises right now. 
The Pharaoh himself has just told me, I got to go kill my own people. I thought you were going to bless me. I thought you were going to prosper us. I thought you were going to be kind to us. Where are your promises right now? I mean, this was a scary thing because of who Pharaoh was. Pharaoh was the mightiest man on the face of the planet, leading the strongest nation in the world. At this time, no one even came close to Egypt. Do you know that the Egyptians were the, the first people ever to build a structure that was as high as 50 stories? It was the pyramids. The, the tallest buildings, and they built it back in 2560 B.C. And they were the tallest standing man-made structure for 3,800 years. No one came anywhere close to their power or their wealth or their ingenuity. They were in a league all by themselves. And the Pharaoh was the leader of that nation. If anybody had power, it was Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh comes up to these, no, these, these nobodies, these two Hebrew midwives, and gives them a direct command. You're going to go and you're going to kill these people. And these poor midwives are going, what do I do now? And you would think they would be terrified. But what you're about to discover is that the real heroes of chapter 1 are these midwives. Because they are terrified. They're just not terrified of Pharaoh. Let's keep on reading. See what it says next as we finish up the story. Verse 17. It says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now I'm going to stop there. Keep the scripture up there. Don't, don't take it down. So they said they defied the word of Pharaoh. Before I move on, I want to make sure you understand just how crazy bodacious that is. You know the highest ranking general in the Egyptian army, if he defied the command of Pharaoh, would be beheaded immediately. How much worse is it going to be for these two Hebrew midwives? This is crazy to defy the Pharaoh. But here's what's even crazier. Not only did they defy the Pharaoh, when they get discovered, they lie to the Pharaoh's face. Keep on reading next, verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. <laughs> he's, he's saying they're all fluffy little you know, women who can't handle Like oh, Hebrew women, man, we can have our babies. They're, they're not like Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now I'm going to stop there. We're going to move on to the next verse next week. But they come to Pharaoh when Pharaoh finds out they're not doing what had been commanded. And they lie to the Pharaoh saying, oh, you know, they're not like Egyptian women. They, they just have the baby. The babies pop out before we even get there. Truth is, they were intentionally not killing the babies. They're lying to Pharaoh. Which you go, oh, yeah, of course they're lying to Pharaoh. They're trying to protect their own backside. Listen, if you're trying to protect your backside, you don't lie to Pharaoh. Because when you lie to Pharaoh, not only do you die, he comes after your entire family. It was a double risk to both resist the command of Pharaoh and then to lie to his face. You want to know why they were willing to do that? Because of what the scripture said, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And if it meant they had to defy Pharaoh to be obedient to God, they were going to be willing to do it. Listen, there, there's this incredible statement by a, a Puritan writer back in the 1600s, a guy named William Gurnall. He says, we have so much fear of men because we have so little fear of God. Yeah, that should make us go, mm, it's true. It made me say the same thing when I was reading that. We have so much fear of men. We have so much fear of circumstances. We have so much fear of tomorrow because we have so little fear of God. Proverbs 9.10, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because when you're afraid of God in a healthy way, you can't fear anything else. Now, I know some of you struggle with that idea. Like, what do you mean fear God? Like, it, that sounds wrong. 
I'm not supposed to be afraid of God, right? Because in your mind, when you hear fear of God, you think I'm scared of God and I run away from him because I'm afraid he's going to hurt me. That's not what fear means when it talks about the fear of God. Another Hebrew word important for you to understand is yareh. That's the word for fear that's used here. And that word means, you've maybe heard this before, reverence, but it also means awe or astonishment. It means to just be overwhelmed by the magnitude of something and to realize your smallness compared to it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean I'm afraid of God, I want to run away from him. It means I'm so awed by God, I just want to stare at him. So imagine this. Imagine you're standing by the ocean and you're there on the shore and you're just looking out over this massive water. And you know that if you were to be picked up and dropped in the middle of that water, you'd be a goner. It would consume you. You wouldn't be able to handle it. It's so much greater than you are. You feel so small when you're standing next to this massive body of water you can't even see the other side of. But it doesn't make you run from it. It makes you just want to stand there and gaze at it because you're in awe of it. That's the kind of fear it's talking about here. You don't, you don't run from God. You just want to stare at him for a bit because you're, you're not, you know if he were to fall on you, he would crush you in an instant. You know how small you are compared to the majestic God, but you don't want to run from him. You can't help you just staring at him because you're in awe of him. You, you, are in, you have a healthy fear of him. And when you have that kind of fear of God, do you know what happens? You obey him. You don't want to displease him. You want to do everything for him. And the moment you want to, you want to obey him is the moment you have faith in him. Because you know he can handle anything. If there's a God that big, there's not anything he can't handle. He can handle my circumstances. He can handle Pharaoh. He can handle whatever. I can put my faith in him and I can obey him. I'm more afraid of him than I am anybody else. And when we have fear of God, we're not afraid of anybody else. That's why God blessed the midwives. Because they were more in awe of God than they were of Pharaoh. And they were going to obey God over Pharaoh. God blesses us when we have that, even when we lie because of it. You know, you, you hear this, they, they lied to Pharaoh. And there's some of you going, wait, wait, I thought the Bible said thou shalt not lie or something like that. I mean, why is God blessing these people who are lying? Well, it's a very easy reason why. God blesses the faith of that moment. We, we can become real legalistic if we're not careful. But let me go ahead and tell you, God is way more concerned about our faith and trust in him than he is mindlessly obeying these rules. There's a, there's a reason why God says don't lie. He's saying come into my character but there are times like this when telling the lie is trusting in God more than somebody else. Maybe you can imagine it this way. Imagine you're in Nazi Germany and the Gestapo comes to your house and you're hiding some Jewish people in the walls of your house and they bang on the door and they say, are there any Jews here? And you lie and you say, there are no Jews here. God is not going to punish you for lying there. He's going to see your bravery to say, I'm more afraid of God than I am of the Gestapo coming over here and I'm going to protect God's people. God is moved by that. There's somebody going, well, well, tell me where that's in the Bible. Well, go read the book of Judges, or Joshua, excuse me, chapter 2, and read about a woman named Rahab. And there was these spies that came, these, these Hebrew spies to her, to her house, and the Jericho soldiers find out, and they come to Rahab, and they say, tell us, where are the spies? And Rahab says, I don't know, they left, go chase them, you might find them. She's lying through her teeth, they're up on the terrace of her house, hiding under some flax. And what does God do? God protects her and blesses her because she was more afraid of their God than she was the, the soldiers of her city. You see, it comes down to fear in the right place. When we have fear in the right place, we will obey God. And when we obey God, God blesses it over and over and over again. There is no truer picture of this than the story of Jesus. Remember, every bit of the book of Exodus is pointing us to the story of Jesus. And here was a man who knew where to put his fear in the right place. We've talked about this a few weeks ago, Garden of Gethsemane. Here's Jesus coming in, and he's afraid. 
He does not want to drink the cup of wrath. He does not want to take upon the sins of humanity to have all the shame and the guilt of all of us upon his shoulders. He doesn't want to incur the wrath of Almighty God. He says, God, if there's any way for me to drink this, not to have to drink of it, let it pass through me. I don't want to do it. He's afraid of the cup of wrath. But he is more in awe of his father than he is of the cup of wrath. More afraid of displeasing his daddy than he is taken in the cup of wrath. And he says, not my will, your will be done. His fear was in the right place. And what happened? At the end of the story, the Father bestowed upon the name that is above every single name. So the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He blessed that kind of obedience because his fear was in the right place. So my question for you this morning is, where's your fear? Every single one of us in this room, we have fear. Every one of us has fear. The question is, is our fear in the right place? I don't, I don't know what's going on in your life. Like I mentioned, there are some of you, many of you perhaps in this room, and it does not feel like God is keeping his promises to you. You don't feel God's blessing and his provision and his protection that he's doing good to you. You don't feel joy. You don't feel peace. You don't feel these things that are promised to you in the Bible. And there's a side where you might be afraid, wondering when God is going to come in. But here's what I want to tell you. God always keeps his promises. He just wants you to trust in him. He wants you to wait to see the deliverance and the promises of God fulfilled. There is not a single thing God is doing in your life right now that he is wasting. Romans 8.28 says it clearly. God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Every hardship, every difficulty, every situation that overwhelms you, every fear you have, every bit of it, the Father is using for good. And he will fulfill his promise my question to you is, are you trusting him in the middle of it? These midwives, they set the example for us. Fear God above everything else and risk everything to please him, no matter what else is going on in your life. And my question to you is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to trust your father that much? The reason I told you during the offering time that today is Pentecost Sunday, that you should come expecting this, because I believe right now is when God wants to challenge you. I believe right now is when God wants to change you because I think there are some of you in this room and you're letting fear rule your life and you're forgetting that our God is a promise keeper. And right now might be a time where you need to begin to exercise faith all over again. There are some of you to live like these Hebrew midwives. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to conquer some of these fears and be more afraid of God than you are whatever's going on in your life. And for some of you, that may mean being bold about your faith even though you're surrounded by people who don't believe like you believe. It may mean saying, I'm choosing to be holy and live different than everybody else, even if they mock me, even if they shame me for it, I'm going to choose God's ways because I'm more afraid of him than I am what everybody else thinks about me. For some of you, it may mean you're going to give up certain temptations that are in your life right now, and you're so afraid of giving up whatever that thing is. Some of you, there's addictions, there's alcohol, there's drugs, there's, there's porn, there's all these things that you keep running back to again and again and again. And here's the reason why. Because you think it's going to satisfy you, and you're so scared to give it up. And God is saying to you, would you be more afraid of me than you are that thing? Would you be more in awe of me than you are that thing? Would you be willing to give it up? There are some of you right now, and the Spirit put this heavy upon my heart today, that you need to be prayed over. You need healing. You need God to move in your life. You need God to solve some kind of situation. And you're afraid to ask for prayer because if God doesn't answer your prayer, you're afraid your faith can't handle that. And so you're not coming forward to be prayed over because you're afraid. What if it doesn't work? Would you be willing today to be more afraid of displeasing your father than you are what might happen when you get prayed over? 
Would you be more in awe of your God than you are, whatever it's going to take to handle that situation you're in? He is a promise keeper, but you got to trust in him. But one last thing, there are some of you who are here today, I know it. And the most important thing in your life is to give every bit of your life to the Lord. And you're afraid. You're afraid of what it's going to cost. You're afraid of what you're going to have to give up, how much it's going to hurt, how you're going to have to change. And you're not willing to do it. Or maybe, maybe you're afraid. You know you need to be coming to these waters to get baptized. And you're afraid to do it because you're worried what people might think about you if you come forward. Or they're going to think maybe, I don't know, that I don't, I don't love God or there's something wrong with me or I'm weak. And would you be more concerned about what your father thinks about you than you are what anybody else in this room thinks about you and say, God, I'm going to be more in awe of you than anything else. And this is what obedience looks like, that I'm not going to be afraid any longer. I'm going to be more afraid of displeasing you than I am the people around me. And I'm going to come. I believe some of you need to respond today. Respond in faith and get baptized. Respond in faith and get prayed over. Respond in faith and say, God, God forgive me. Father, forgive me for not trusting you in my circumstances. Maybe you just need to get down on your knees and not talk to anybody but the Lord and tell him that you're going to trust him. I don't know what you need to do, but I believe you need to respond because God wants to change you today. So I want to encourage you to stand up right now, if you will. I'm going to invite the pastoral staff to come forward to be willing to pray and the spouses of the pastors to come with them. And we're going to be here ready to pray over you. And I'm going to invite those of you who are in the room, if you need right now God to move in your life, if you need right now to say, I'm going to be prayed over, if you need right now to say, I'm ready to take the step of faith and be baptized today, I don't know if God's going to call anybody, but I believe some of you need to confront your fears. This morning may be the time to do so. So as we sing about the promises of God, you respond as you need to. Now's the time.